0: The acquisition of nuclear weapons has long been a central goal of Iran's revolutionary Islamist leaders. President Obama concluded a deal that he said halted that eventuality. At best, in fact, the deal would have delayed it. President Trump withdrew from the unsigned agreement and has been waging what he calls a maximum pressure campaign to prevent the theocrats from achieving their goal. They've not given up on it yet or even agreed to new negotiations. Helping us today to understand the current state of nuclear play are Andrea Stricker, a research fellow at FDD and an established expert on nuclear weapons, proliferation, and illicit procurement networks, and Benham Ben Talibu, a senior fellow at FDD where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. I'm Cliff May, and we're pleased to have you with us here on Foreign Policy. Let's begin with a a stroll down Iranian nuclear memory lane. The Islamic Republic of Iran was birthed by the Islamic Revolution in Iran of 1979. And the new rulers, revolutionary theocrats, decided to launch a program to develop nuclear weapons based on an existing nuclear program, but one that was not a nuclear weapons program. Um, rather, the existing program traces back, as I think, to the 1950s, right? It uh, was subject to verification by the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, and was in conformance with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Andrea, do I do I have that right so far?
2: It's totally right. Um, the big decision to go for a nuclear weapons program, though, I believe started around 1984. That's when Ayatollah Khomeini, he decided that they were going to go ahead with that to protect the Islamic revolution.
0: So in uh, and, and, and so 1984, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the leader of the revolution and now the supreme leader of Iran, that's the title he, he takes. Uh, He decides we have to have nuclear weapons and he's going to build on this. Uh, At this point, does does the United States realize what he's doing? Does the international community, does the IAEA, the UN, who who figures out what they're doing? Well, immediately
1: next door, Saddam figured out what he was doing because Saddam was doing this too. Remember, 1984 – is midway through this eight-year war called the Iran-Iraq War. And just a footnote to both of the chronologies here, when the Islamic Revolution happened, Khomeini initially wanted to take this reactor, which is now working all the way in Iran's southwest, this Bushehr reactor, and turn it into a grain silo. Because he believed that nuclear weapons and nuclear technology and all this stuff was haram. It, it was forbidden. It was Western. He really and did believe that. That wasn't, that, that no, wasn't that w- made up. That mm-hmm. wasn't a talking point. They actually believed that the Shah b- wasted Iran's oil wealth on nuclear technology and Iran had enough oil wealth and, and honestly to hell with this guy and we can turn inward and we have this spiritual dominance and this spiritual purity. And why do we need this foreign Western nuclear technology when of course we have all this oil wealth? Uh, It's a good point. Lo and behold, and this is really one of the real reasons why Iran's nuclear program uh, has military dimensions. They resurrected the late Shah's nuclear program during a war with Iraq. So it had military dimensions from the Uh, get-go. They tried to bomb Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor many times and failed. The Israelis did the job once and did it right. Um, Had the Israelis not done it, Iran would have been subjected to nuclear weapons, just like they were subjected to chemical weapons. So the Israelis did
0: a big favor for the Ayatollah Khomeini. Okay. And, Andrew, pick up – so at this point, the international monitors, the experts, they know what's going on, or they don't know what's going on quite yet, or they suspect – what's the story?
2: I believe it was more like intelligence agencies picked up on it. Um, Iran's nuclear weapons program really picked up in the 1990s, but first they had to actually build the program. So that involved a lot of illicit imports of, you know, centrifuge parts, um, everything that they would outfit a program with.
0: And these were illicit because they had signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and That's so right. they had assured the international community, international observers, the UN, that their nuclear program was only for peaceful purposes, it's gonna produce electricity to use in kindergartens and hospitals and mosques and all that, so and they had to bring this material in in violation of the tr- of, of, of their obligations.
2: That's right, and they actually procured an early centrifuge design, and a centrifuge is, it's a spinning machine that basically enriches uranium and it can be enriched to weapon grade to make nuclear weapons. Um, they procured a design from a, an illicit network called the AQ Khan Network out of Pakistan, they had previously stolen this design from Urenko, so this design has been floating around for a while.
0: It's worth just telling people who A.Q. Khan was and what he did because he's a, he's a major f- figure in history that people don't know and not, not, not a good figure.
1: Yeah. A.Q. Khan, if I recall correctly, is a Pakistani nuclear scientist. He kind of has a hero status in Pakistan today. He's really one of the fathers of Pakistan's uh, atomic weapons program. And he basically took this German centrifuge design and made it a Pakistani centrifuge design that ended up, I think, in, in multiple places in Iran, in Libya, if I'm not mistaken, North Korea, dare I even say. Uh, and this weapon, this uh, this piece of technology, the centrifuge uh, that these different countries have is really the product of this man's theft of old German nuclear
0: technology. And best of my recollection, the Pakistani government uh, didn't endorse him, but neither did it do anything to prevent this proliferation. It sort of smiled on it very quietly. Am I right? Yeah, I think he's under house arrest today, but it might is be he? a very loose
1: house arrest. Okay.
0: All right. So, to, to take us the next steps. Then there is there 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 are other things that they're doing in secret, uh, in terms of building nuclear facilities. Right?
2: They were building a heavy water reactor called the Arak reactor, um, and then they were building a secret centrifuge plant called Natanz. Both of these were revealed not until two thousand three. That's
0: a long time to be working on that. How do they? How come satellites and other intelligence gathering methods didn't figure out that they were doing this?
2: I believe there were some indications, but it, it was just chatter at the time. But these were revealed, I believe, the by the media, by resistance groups, and by mm-hmm. NGOs.
0: Yeah, and most of this can be done inside a building. So unless you're inside, the, the satellite's not going to show it. Unless you know that there are certain kinds of equipment being delivered in the trucks. But if you don't know that, you you you, you might not be you might not be sure what's going That's on. Right. right?
2: They relied a lot on dissident reports.
0: And there was some
1: digging and tunneling, but really, if you look at old school, 1990s uh, is now old school, I guess. uh, CIA documents, congressional hearings from that era, uh, they were talking about uh, Iran's interest the intent they had to pursue a nuclear weapons program because they saw they saw a little bit of these networks pick up for instance there is pictures of Rafsanjani in the late 1980s taking his family to North Korea they saw at this time Iran building not just a nuclear program but a very public missile program perhaps a delivery vehicle for a nuclear weapon they see all these networks that Iran buying illicit things from from central Europe eastern Europe southeast Asia picking up so there's things and just as Andrew was saying that are on the intelligence side that People are picking up and then you see a lot more building and a lot more construction. And that's why in the, in the nineties and especially in the late nineties, there is talk of Iran's interest in nuclear weapons. And there's predictions even made if Iran is not stopped or if there is no foreign support, how long would it take the Islamic Republic to actually get a nuclear weapon? And that critical moment, as Andrea said, was 2002 to 2003 when these sites were revealed. And that's really the beginning of the modern era. And the modern era is the Iranian nuclear crisis because as soon as there was an Iranian nuclear program revealed, nuclear diplomacy began with Iran. Uh, so it's it's a mistake to say that the Obama administration started diplomacy. The Europeans started diplomacy with Iran as soon as these sites were really unveiled.
0: And when you say they started diplomacy, they're trying to shut these sites down. What are they trying to do? And what, what measures did they take? it was both
1: political and, uh, and, and scientific. They wanted to shutter some sites but they also were looking to stop at that time a younger Bush administration from going to war. So the Europeans have always been uh, a man in the middle. They wanted to stop President Bush from taking tough action on Tehran and they also wanted to get the Iranians to concede a little bit just to placate the Americans. And uh, a lot of this stuff log rolled and, and really 2006 is the critical year because the Americans and Europeans don't see IDI until 2006 when Iran's nuclear file goes to the UN Security Council.
0: And we'll pick it up from there. What happens at, at, at that point when the Security Council now has the nuclear file, knows that Iran is developing nuclear weapons? Iran has not acknowledged this at that point. In fact, they never, they never do acknowledge it.
2: That's right. So just to back up a little, they implemented what's called the IAEA's additional protocol from 2003 to 2006. So and they're that,
0: additional to the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? Or? Uh, to
2: the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement mm-hmm. the, called the CSA under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's an additional inspection tool for the IAEA. Uh, so they they applied that for a while. They were trying to cooperate a little bit more, be more transparent then they decided that sort of blackmail is a better route to go. Mm-hmm. So they drew back their cooperation. Uh, in, in 2006, then we go to the UNSC. Um, they passed a series of resolutions calling on Iran to halt its enrichment program, putting in sanctions against Iran um, on eventually... Very strong sanctions.
1: I mean, that's, that's the part where the, the transatlantic community comes together. If you remember, yeah. Europe and America were almost perennially divided on Iran. Uh, what got them to come together was in 2006, uh, Iran's nuclear file went to the Security Council because of these Iranian violations. Iran reneged on some of those promises Andrea was talking about. Um, you know, past is always prologue. So during this time, Rouhani, who is now Iran's president, then he w- was Iran's chief nuclear negotiator. And remember those concessions we talked about, the few sites that Iran sh- wanted to say it shut or the few activities Iran said that it's not going to partake in. Rouhani said that the things that they stopped doing were merely things that they already knew how to do. Mm -hmm. And this this sets the predicate for the kind of concessions Iran would give much later on. 2006 to 2010, you have multiple UN Security Council resolutions punishing Iranian nuclear entities and military entities and actual companies, and dare I even say lays the predicate for banking sanctions. The latest UN Security Council resolution at that era in 2010 cited the support Iran's energy sector, could provide the regime's nuclear program. So they established a predicate from revenue from oil to support the nuclear program. And then in 2010 to 2013, this is the the incubation period for sanctions. The American sanctions for penalties kick in in this time, married with European penalties, married with European and international export controls, creates this web of pain uh, for Iran that gets them to negotiate in 2013 to get you this interim deal, the JPOA, and then, in 2015, the "quote unquote" final deal, the JCPOA. I
0: just want to back up for one moment, and then we'll come. Then I, then I want to get get exactly to that because there's one other period in here we should note, and that is after the U.S. went into Iraq in 2003, if I recall, and we had U.S. troops also in Afghanistan. So essentially, the Islamic Republic of Iran was surrounded by American troops engaged in regime change. We have had we had some intelligence that at that point they said, "Whoops." let's hold off on any further nuclear weapons development. Am I am I remembering that correctly?
1: I think so, although it's later on, the International Atomic Energy Agency yeah. did say that there were some things that continued in an unstructured fashion uh-huh. that did continue uh, beyond 2003 and four. But 2003, I think, was a, a key flashpoint.
0: They were spooked at that point yeah. that the U.S. might have the, uh, the capability and intention to do regime change in three countries at one time, possibly. Eventually, of course... They got over that and saw that's probably not going to happen. Um, in particular, I think when the U.S. was doing badly in Iraq and the, uh, particularly the Shia militias were being armed and by the Islamic Republic of Iran, sent IEDs and other things, Americans were being killed by the, the mullahs of Iran at their instigation. And the U.S., instead of saying, you're not going to get away with this, turned a blind eye because there was no appetite. To escalate the war beyond the borders of Iraq. In other words, to say, okay, we're going to find a weapons factory building IEDs in Iran that they're sending to the Shia militias to use against American troops. And we're going to turn that to rubble just so they understand they can't do that. I think that might, I think that, that, that is a reasonable criticism of the, of the Bush administration that they didn't do that, that they looked weak and looking weak to an adversary like the Islamic Republic of Iran is probably a bad strategy. President Obama thinks, what, I guess it's my responsibility to do something about Iran and the possibility that this regime will have nuclear weapons. And so he, with with, with, with quite a bit of instigation from Congress and from FDD, I should say, sanctions are imposed upon the regime. they are tough sanctions. And in 2013, that gets the regime to come to the table and say, we'll negotiate, And in fact, an interim agreement. And at that point, I would argue... Tell me if I'm wrong. Basically, the Iranians at that point said, the negotiators said, we don't need to make any more concessions now because once the sanctions were mostly lifted in 2013 in exchange for this interim agreement, the economy of Iran, which had been in very bad shape, begins to rebound. And now John Kerry Wendy Sherman, the other negotiators for the US, they begin making concessions over the next couple of years as they negotiate what's going to be the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA. Um, and the JCPOA is not a treaty, it's not a signed agreement, it's a, it's a plan of action essentially. Do you agree that too many concessions were made, that, it was, that in some ways the JCPOA was weaker than what we had with the UN Security Council uh, before?
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, in a sense, in essence, you had UNSC resolutions demanding that the enrichment program be at, at least shut down for a while.
0: Right. No enrichment of uranium whatsoever. You don't right. need to do it. Stop it. That that's the demand. Mm-hmm. And the Iranians say, no, we have a right to, to enrich. It's a human right, basically. That's right.
2: Also, the deal, the JCPOA, ended up leaving open a Fordow enrichment facility.
0: And Talk about what Fordow was and what we know about that.
2: So the Fordow enrichment facility. What we know now is a facility underground, it's underground, highly to, fortified to be secret. Yes, it's an IR. It was an IRGC owned facility. And
0: the IRGC, it's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's the, I, I guess you would say the, I don't know, the Expeditionary Force, the elite, the elite of the military uh, of, of Iran, right? Just it's Iran's aware. ideological
1: military. That's Very right. good. Okay. There's a, there's a quote from Khomeini about the IRGC comparing it why you would need an ideological military and not just a national military and he said uh, the artesh that's the national military the artesh has the shah in its blood and you need to be a revolutionary regime you need a revolutionary army
2: so the ford facility was revealed to the world by the obama administration along with the french and the british they made a very uh, stunning speech announcing that they had found this facility underground um And later, Iran allowed access to it, to the IEA. And the IEA discovered that there were signs that it was originally designed for probably weapon-grade uranium production. Today, we know now that Iran had originally planned to make probably one to two nuclear weapons per year in their early nuclear weapons program. So that was around the 2000 to 2003 era that that plan was in place. So Fordow is a very threatening facility to the West.
1: You could even say it's the crown jewel of Iran's illicit nuclear uh, infrastructure. It's under a mountain. It's just outside the outskirts of uh, the holy city of Qom in, in central Iran. Uh, it's a place that really got the Americans and Europeans to come together and say, whoa, this is this is really a sign that they're not making Tylenol at this plant. It's underground. Uh, you know, what do you need to hide from us that you need to put it under under tons of rock,
0: and you know a lot about missiles, so this is a good question for you. If you wanted to destroy this facility, if you thought thought you needed to do so, it's possible to do, but difficult. A bunker buster could do it. The U.S. could do it. Israel couldn't do it. How, what would you What would you say about that? When the facility was first
1: revealed, and in fact, some of the other Iranian facilities are. Underground, They have above ground and subterranean complexes too. The military argument would be that you need to hit the same spot with conventional weaponry in such a precise fashion at, this, uh, at the same time. You'd have multiple jets go and do multiple sorties on the same area of impact. So the same spot that's hit, you'd have to hit it again and again to have the bunker buster tunnel deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, and then you'd have the facility collapse on itself. Uh, then there was, I think it was 2012, it was revealed that there's this weapon, the United States has, no pun intended, the massive ordnance penetrator, mm-hmm. or the mop, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And you know there was talk about what kind of planes can deliver such a heavy conventional yeah. load, and it's the, the B-2 bomber. And really, there's only one country with this bombing capability, it's the United States of America. Um, so... Yes, there's always a bigger bomb. You can always create a bigger crater. It's just a more challenging military mission. And then it gets into the political effects of a military strike be long term, short term, many strikes over a long period of time. Uh, And the Iranians know this, and they're watching us have this very public debate about what capabilities we have, what we can do, uh, and how they'll respond. And they're adjusting in my mind. Every time they see the debate, take on a new contour, a new color, a new complexion. And one reason why this period, 2013 to 2015, is so critical is that by engaging with America, the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism realized that America wants a deal for political reasons more than they need a deal for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. And once that crystallized, you got the JCPOA.
0: So the president concludes the JCPOA. He has European partners on this. The Congress, a majority in Congress, are not in favor of it. But he doesn't need it. It's not a treaty. A majority of the public, based on polls, is not in favor. of it, But again, he doesn't need it. He claims that this will this has halted um, the, the 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 progress being made by the, the regime to get a nuclear weapon. I, I think the, the the more proper word would be delay. Let's go to this, perhaps, as, as certainly as we at FDD saw it, the, the JCPOA had flaws, three in particular, and let's go over them. One is the sunset clauses. Why don't you say what the sunset clauses are, Angie?
2: The sunset clause is uh, basically saying that Iran's enrichment program can pick back up. So that picks back up at year eight of the deal. Mm-hmm. So we're already in year four of the deal. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing in four more years Is the is the question. Um, And then after year eight, their advanced centrifuge program can be put back in place. So they're starting to regrow this threatening enrichment capability. Uh, What the JCPOA did do was it lengthened Iran's so-called breakout capability. Mm. And the breakout capability is basically the time that it takes to produce enough weapon-grade uranium for one single nuclear weapon. And then you need additional time for nuclear weaponization. Uh, So that was one success of the JCPOA. But again, it is just a delay.
0: Well, and I'm jumping ahead. I'm going to come back to the flaws, but but while we're here, just so we get this on on the on the air, the breakout time before the JSU POA was probably was estimated at how much?
2: It was weeks to months.
0: Weeks to months. The breakout time at this moment is estimated at.
2: The breakout time at this moment is estimated at about four to six months.
0: So there's something there, but it's not huge.
2: Right. And this is due to the steps they've taken since. Well,
0: the steps they've taken under the JC, because for a while they were further, maybe a year uh, out on breakout time?
2: Yeah, it was more like seven to 12 months. Seven
0: to 12 months. Okay. So let's go back to the, the fundamental floor. A second was verification. The idea that this was really intrusive, except for example- military facilities were not going to be inspected well who would ever develop nuclear weapons in a military facility well the iranians had in the past hadn't they
1: Yeah. And given the fact that the whole program was started while there was a war raging and every single element of the Iranian economy was geared towards the war effort, the nuclear program too had a military dimension to it. So there's uh, research labs in Iranian universities that would be off limits because the IRGC would be there. There's undeclared military facilities. And you know what the JCPOA was great at was allowing you to see sites that we already know about. And let's not forget, almost every single overt site was once a covert site every single public facility was once a secret facility. So now we're just checking all of the public facilities. But what's out there that's private? You know, there is a need, most unfortunately, to crawl across this country and see what's going on because they haven't had such a good track record of being honest and upfront in the past. And the JCPOA was deeply inspecting those public sites and going to take their word for them about some of the other sites and let them do things like self-inspections and have a delay process. I think it was a 24-day process. You could adjudicate, we want to see this facility, no, it's not listed, this whole debacle.
0: You know, and I think something people don't get, the JCPOA wasn't a case where the Iranians said, okay, we have been developing nuclear weapons in the past, we now admit it, we did it secretly. Whether we're sorry for it or not, we get it under this agreement, we won't do that anymore. Uh, The JCPOA allowed the Iranians to continue to say, we've never done anything wrong. We've never had a nuclear weapons program. We don't want to have a nuclear weapons program. Um, And that's it. They're not actually saying we had one and we're stopping it. So I I just think that's an important point because they were never made to fess up. They were never made to, to say, tell us what you have done before that you didn't admit because that'll help us understand what you may be doing now. None of that. John Kerry allowed all that. To pass. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but that's the that's the situation.
2: That's true. The IEA had so much evidence prior to 2015 of this secret nuclear weapons effort. So basically the JCPOA forced them to only conclude with the with the IEA a perfunctory report into the possible military dimensions of their program. They didn't answer all the questions. They left many areas with false explanations. And then the the world powers just put the deal through and said the case is closed.
0: Okay, third fatal flaw. If you have a nuclear weapon, you need a means to deliver it. You can call FedEx, but that's not the best way. You want missiles that can actually do that, intercontinental ballistic missiles, if you want to deliver them to another continent. And the JCPOA doesn't say, okay, you can't continue to develop missile delivery programs for nuclear weapons. It says... Actually, it reduces the limitations on missile development compared to what the UN had, no?
1: Yes, unfortunately. You know, the (laughs) missile doesn't really appear in the JCPOA. What it really appears is in the UN Security Council resolution codifying the deal. And in there, it simply waters down what it the waters. UN said previously. Now it kindly calls upon Iran not to flight test missiles that were designed to be capable. And calls this upon, is, doesn't prohibit it. Uh, yeah. But calls upon would be good enough for me. I see. But it, but they have this word designed to be capable. So much like the JCPOA entertains the fiction that Iran never had a military nuclear program in the past, this entertains the fiction that some of these missiles weren't designed to be capable. It lets the Iranians talk about what designs they do believe could carry on conventional payloads as opposed to taking internationally accepted standards of range and payload and saying, this is a strategic weapon, this is not a strategic weapon. Uh, so again, it's a major concession to Iran. And it's a concession Zarif fought for late in 2015 and won, and it is a major diplomatic victory for the Islamic Republic of Iran, not just against the United States, but against the international
0: community. So are there other flaws in the agreement that that are not as well known as these? I mean, these are pretty big ones.
2: Well, I mean, it, there's a restriction that they can't reprocess plutonium, which is the other route that you can take to make nuclear weapons material.
0: Right, plutonium uh, instead of uranium. R- yeah.
2: Using a, re- a nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. So there's a 15-year restriction on that. So that doesn't help you out in the long term. Mm. Um, there's also flaws with the procurements. So they, the Iran is supposed to go through what's called a procurement channel to import anything nuclear related. They're supposed to have the supplier that wants to buy the good go to their government and then that that government gets permission at the UN through this JCPOA procurement channel. So there's evidence Iran has been violating this and just procuring nuclear dual use goods on the market. Um, no one's requesting permission. They're getting through China. They're getting through other countries. So they're they're basically able to keep growing their advanced centrifuge program, or at least the equipment for it.
0: So i Am I, I I'm, I'm being unfair when I, I think that John Kerry and his chief negotiator Wendy Sherman were like, you know, city slickers in Tombstone, wandering into a saloon and playing poker with Doc? I mean, they just—they're going to lose the shirts because they—they're not able to negotiate on that level. Or was it simply that Obama had said to them, "Look, you're going to come out with a deal." I'd rather a good deal than a bad deal, but a bad deal is better than no deal. I can't have nothing to show the American public. Uh, I just can't.
1: You know, I have my own analogy, Cliff. Yeah. And it's like any Middle Eastern bazaar or souk or spice market or rug yeah. market or art market or trinket market even. If you like the thing that's in the window and you express an interest, the owner is going to charge you your father's blood money for it. And the Iranians sense that we wanted a deal and they charged us our father's blood money for it. There's, there's no simpler way to do it, you know. Uh, a friend of mine, a colleague at another think tank, Kareem, I think in one congressional testimony, uh, he was talking about the background of some of Iran's nuclear negotiators. And this is an interesting insight he had. They're not necessarily all from clerical families. They're not all from military families. They're from merchant families. Mm-hmm. And not only do they know the nuclear file really well, they know the give and take. They know the art of seduction and persuasion and negotiating and bargaining and, and not like classical academic bargaining, but almost art of the deal style bargaining.
0: Okay, so now we're in the JCPOA. Of course, President Trump very quickly says this is the worst deal I've ever seen. He pulls out of it. The Europeans say we're staying in it. It is. It is. It is very productive, and we're reading in a lot of the press, and I'm hearing from diplomats here in Washington that I, you know, occasionally meet with. Now, you know, the 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 Iranian regime is meeting its obligations uh, under the JCPOA, and the IAEA is verifying that that's the case. That's not right, is it?
2: Well, they were they were complying mostly with the, the major provisions. There were a few infringements on the on the centrifuge deployments and things like that.
0: Heavy water. It's they heavy were water. they were sort of testing the limits to see how, what would happen, right? Right, as Iran does. As, as Iran does, and it, but it, like it, we'll go further. At this point, they're in violation, more serious violation of the JCPOA. Are they not, Andrea? That's
2: right. Now, today, uh, basically since May of this year, they've been undertaking a series of violations every 60 days. So now they're on their fifth round of violations. Uh, They've gone past what's called their low enriched uranium cap. So the JCPOA has a cap of 300 kilograms that they can produce. Uh, They've gone beyond that. They've also enriched beyond 3.67% to 4.5% on enriched uranium. They've removed all the restrictions on advanced centrifuge R&D, and they've started redeploying these more advanced centrifuges, which can make uranium to a higher enrichment much quicker. In January, as the fifth step, they stated that all enrichment-related provisions are now void.
0: So, with given these violations, didn't we hear, wasn't it advertised early on that if violations uh, occur, serious violations, this is more than probably incremental pushing the, uh, pushing the envelope, uh, there would be a snapback, that was the word that was used, snapback of European sanctions. Um, wasn't that what we were told? And then we're not nowhere near that, are we?
1: Yeah, it seems what snapped wasn't the snapback, but European political will to trigger the snapback. You know, those violations that Andrew is mentioning, they come every 60 days. The Iranians aren't doing this by accident. These are pre-planned. And what happens is uh, they're testing the resolve of the Europeans as well as the relationship between Europe and America to trigger that UN snapback, to bring back all those resolutions Andrea was talking about that contain more stringent language and more tighter uh, prescriptions about the direction of Iran's nuclear program than this JCPOA deal. And they're trying to see if we actually will uh, collapse the deal because the Europeans are still trying to save the deal.
0: By the way, there's one other thing we sh- that we should probably should bring in here that it- – Sheds light on Iranian intentions and capabilities, and that's what's called the Iranian nuclear uh, archives. Uh, I guess that was earlier this year. Israel's Mossad, the spy agency, goes into Tehran in dead of night, finds in an old, kind of an old neighborhood, kind of dilapidated, a warehouse, and takes out but tons of material that is turned over to the IE and others, and says look, this shows that they've been lying about their intentions, about their abilities, about all of that. And from what I could see, the IAEA and the Europeans said, "Uh, probably nothing to see here. Why don't you guys go home?
2: That's very true. Um, So the nuclear archive, it turns out, was, was many tons worth of files, CDs, presentations that details all of Iran's past nuclear weapons efforts. Um, lot Israel shared a lot of this with the media and NGOs, particularly FDD and the Institute for Science and International Security. And we were able to analyze the documents so we really could piece together the early nuclear weapons program. And just as you say, the international community was downplaying it. We had pundits in the United States who were saying there's nothing new here. We knew it all. Uh, the I.A. was not too concerned about it and just delayed in inspecting or investigating any of the sites or the people named in the archive.
0: And do you have a sense where the Europeans are now? Are they holding fast? Are they kind of deliberating and thinking about what else they should do? Do you, uh, they 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 don't want to be on the same side as Trump? They don't want to antagonize the regime's rulers if they don't have to. Do they feel that they they might? Is this is, is this Still a gray area that we don't know the answer to.
1: So finally, the Europeans did trigger the dispute resolution mechanism in January, but this process could be drawn out for a while. It's worth remembering, of course, that while the Europeans did trigger this process to save the deal, the Americans want this process triggered for the Europeans to leave the deal. The Europeans and even some of the Iranians, of course, want to wait until the November presidential election before going too far. Europe remains the man in the middle on on so many things. They believe in this deal for so many reasons, nonproliferation reasons. They think it actually is good for economic reasons because they actually do want to trade with Iran and for philosophical reasons because I think unlike us, they believe you can moderate and change this regime's behavior over time. Mm -hmm. And that clearly hasn't really proven out. Uh, But that that trinity of forces keeps them wedded to this deal. And the next thing, of course, is that the Europeans are looking to the political timeline here. They're working to keep this deal on life support. Because they know that we have elections in the states in 2020 and the Iranians have presidential elections in 2021. And if they're banking, like some of the Iranians are, on a change in a US administration, which takes a fundamentally different view towards Iran and therefore a different view towards the JCPOA, perhaps the deal that they have kept on life support could be re-entered by a different administration and then presented To the Rouhani administration in Iran, which would still have one more year in office and get everything to be hunky-dory again and just put a bow on it and pretend like all of this never happened.
0: Is there enough of the JCPOA left, both in terms of time, as you say, we're four years into an eight-year sunset and all that, that in 2021, if you have a a president in the White House who thinks – Getting out of the JCPOA, that was a terrible thing President Trump did. I'm getting back into the JCPOA. Is there really a JCPOA to get back into? And what does it look like at that point in terms of what Iran has to has to do, doesn't have to do, given that it's gotten away with various violations in the past? And when Iran is at, at that point looking forward to all restrictions being lifted within a short period of time, just a few more years.
2: That's right. And that's a real danger that a new president would take what's going on and see it as a crisis iran's creating this nuclear crisis Oh, we must go back into the deal right away we should get rid of all the sanctions sacrifice all the leverage that the united states has gained through the maximum pressure campaign Uh, but there's not that much left of the deal as sure it's there are many pages of the deal there are hundreds of provisions Um, it could be built upon for a new deal But there are too many, as you say, sunsets that are coming up that just make entering it a bad proposition. First is we have the military embargo. This is a UN ban on Iran's imports of military goods and equipment and on Iran being able to sell those goods. That's expiring under the Trump administration. So that happens in October of 2020. Uh, Then after that, at year eight, as we talked about, the, there is another ban that expires on Iran's imports of missiles and exports of missiles. Even though they do that anyway, it will be it will be allowed under international law. So they'll be able to cooperate with Russia and China and import whatever they want.
0: So right now, the Trump administration hopes to have another four years in office, but only knows for sure that it has another year actually with the impeachment process. It doesn't actually know that, but let's assume that, that it does. Um, what is the Trump administration doing to maximize maximum pressure in this period? What are its options, and what, not least, what are we at FTD sort of urging as the best of the of the policy choices? Well, our assessment
1: is that Iran's strategy is patience and graduated escalation. So, if they have, uh, they're trying to use time on their side. We got to make time a weapon. Throw in more tough sanctions and have them be more effective by going through with more enforcement. So, okay, we got oil sanctions down. Time to move to the non-oil sector of Iran's economy. You know, if Iran knows that we're going to target oil, they're going to be getting revenues from abroad elsewhere, go after capital goods, go after whole sectors, blacklist elements of the Iranian economy that on paper may not sound dangerous, but actually lend support to Iran's nuclear and missile and other programs. An example, the construction sector. You know, Andrea talked about the underground facility, Fordo. We know that Iran brags that it has jungles of missiles underground. Who is digging these tunnels? Where are these tractors coming from? Where are they being housed? Where are the men who run these tractors uh, getting their revenue from? Uh, do they do their military service? Are they uh, agents or affiliates or veterans of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps? Um, what about the schools that provide the scientific know-how for more precise missiles or for some of this nuclear stuff? There's an entire network of, on paper, non-dangerous sectors of the Iranian economy that now needs to be targeted and quickly uh, because the Trump administration is running out of time. It's a shame that an authoritarian regime is using our domestic politics against us, but that's the way some of this is shaping out.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, we should point out that the, there's economic pressure, but in recent days there's also been social pressure. There have been people in the streets, demonstrations, really hundreds of them, thousands of people in the streets they're not angry at the US they're angry at this government that is taking the oil wealth of the country and spending it on empire building abroad in Lebanon in Gaza in Syria in Iraq Um, the, the subsidies to Hezbollah which also is working with crime networks in Latin America now I I never underestimate the ability of a truly repressive regime to oppress and to stop this sort of thing I mean if it's if you're you know if you're up against the british empire there they may back off uh i'm not sure the supreme Lord, leader backs off and in fact i've heard reports that they're bringing that because they know that iranians may not want to fire against iranians they're bringing in troops from outside the country who will be more willing to kill iranians Am I, have you heard that as well it's entirely possible we know that when there were
1: floods in iran in the southwest earlier this year there were non-Iranian Shia militias, uh, you know, uh, Arabs and Afghans doing flood reconstruction in areas that were previously protesting. So in my view, they may have a garrison already in place. We know that in 2009, there were rumors that you heard Arabic on the streets as skulls were being cracked. But I want to turn attention now to the current protests because much like the 2017-2018 protests, the disposition of the protester is nationalist because the regime is Islamist. Uh, People are talking not about um, the nuclear program or anything like that. They're talking about bread and butter issues. They're chastising the regime for empire building. They're saying, do not go abroad, Iran, come home. And in many ways, these protests are a vindication of Trump's pressure policy. Why? Because one year into the max pressure campaign, the toughest sanctions have been restored. They've been extremely effective. The Iranian people are not pointing a finger at Trump or at America. Even with these tough sanctions, they're pointing a finger still at Khamenei and the corrupt ruling clique in Iran and holding them to account. And any time from here on out, when people say, if you put foreign pressure on Iran, uh, you're going to create a rally around the flag effect at home, you can point to protests. Recently, there were the protests from November to December of 2019, where, according to Reuters, 1,500 people had been killed. You know, these protests were going on for over 100 different cities. And they were the Iranian people taking opportunities, whether driven by economic inflection points, political inflection points, social inflection points, to signal to the international community that the regime does not speak for them. And they're also signaling that they're going to accentuate the chasm that already exists between the state, which is revolutionary, and the society, which is post-revolutionary. You know, in 2009, you had a similar kind of uprising. President Obama didn't necessarily want to support those or was very hesitant to support those because he thought he could make a deal with the rulers uh, in Iran. And that's why you had people in the streets using this Persian phrase, uh, Obama, are you with us or with them?
0: Uh, kind of last question on on this. In 2009, you had an uprising very that was very similar. Um, President Obama did not want to support those protesting in the street because he thought he was going to make a deal with those who rule them. And so he had people in the street, and you can do the phrase in Farsi saying, Obama, are you with us or against us? It was a pun in Farsi, as I remember. Go ahead and give
1: say it in Farsi, so here. It, it rhymes with his name. It says, Obama, Obama, yaba una, yaba ma. Obama, Obama, are you with us or are you with them?
0: So would your recommendation to the president be that he should speak out in favor more strongly? By the way, I should say Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has issued statements in support of the Iranian protesters. Would you urge President Obama, President Trump, to do more at this point, to say more, or – I'd urge everyone, you know, it's no longer the case that support for the Iranian people is the kiss of death
1: to the Iranian people. Those days are long gone. And that is an academic debate, not a a real world policy debate. Um, I would urge everyone, you know, Washington, whether Republicans or Democrats, whoever's in the White House and whoever's in the Congress, there needs to be a bipartisan Iran protest policy playbook. How do you stand with the Iranian people? Not lead them, but support them, not
0: drive them, but help them. Andrew, any other recommendations you'd have if the president's listening?
2: The president's listening. I would say that the U.S. needs to increase its pressure on the IEA to undertake an in depth investigation of the nuclear archive. And that means Iran's past military nuclear program. This wasn't done. We see it's coming back to bite us now. Iran's enriching at it Fordow. Um, it's ramping up its nuclear program in many areas. And we need to determine the extent to which that program pr- progressed in the past and ensure that it's shut down in the future.
0: Andrew Stricker, thank you very much for being with us today. Ben, ben Talablu, thank you as well. This has been a fascinating uh, lesson in what's going on with, uh, with, with the Islamic Republic of Iran. We'll be following very closely. Thanks also to all of you for listening in today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.